this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Hello and welcome to The Drinking Hour here on Food FM with me, David Kermode. And it is episode 24 already, the final instalment of our second series, so we're celebrating our best bits. We've been fortunate to welcome some big names with plenty to talk about, so sit back and enjoy our highlights. In the next hour, we're going to hear from Oz Clark, OBE, an early evangelist for English wine. Fiona Beckett, the Guardian's much-respected wine critic who's a food-pairing specialist. Stephen and Jeannie Cronk will bring us their inspiring story. They gave up their London lives to launch a wine brand in Provence, Domaine Mirabeau, and the legendary Sasha Lachine, who gave up his Bordeaux first growth to launch a wine brand in Provence, Whispering Angel, from his Chateau d'Esclin. Then there's Dr Jamie Good talking wine science and how to make sense of it, and the brilliant Dino Moncrief, a tequila and mezcal specialist who's on a mission to make the drinks world better reflect those it serves. That's all still to come. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. We're starting close to home with Oz Clark, OBE. He started his career as an actor, but wine became his calling, and he was one of the first to take English and Welsh wines seriously quite some years ago. Well, some years later, he's written a book about it, and he told me why. I think actually it was because I've been banging on English wine for at least 20, 25 years. Ever, I mean, I've, I've been gently supporting it ever ever since I was an actor because I you know I used to get invited down to things like the the Kent and Wieldlands um, tasting competition and they would be so incredibly grateful that anyone had come down from London to taste there and you got you got fated like a king um, and you'd find half a dozen wines which are quite nice and you wander back up to London thinking well it was a jolly nice day in the countryside but um, it, the wines were were unambitious and I think that what what got got me going was to find some ambition and the ambition was Nightimber. Um, until Nightimber came along there were some nice wines being made um, but nobody really had the confidence to say I want to make a world beater here until good old Sandy and Stuart Moss turned up from Chicago because presumably you don't turn up in Sussex from Chicago trying to make something quite nice. Uh, you turn up and say, try to say something, I want to make the best in the world. That's what people from Chicago do. Um, and from that moment on, I realised that there was an absolutely massive potential here. But, I, you know, I was also discovering Australia and New Zealand and South Africa and Chile and, and Argentina and California and France and Italy. There's so much to discover. That period, the end of the 90s into the noughties, um, was a fabulous time to tear about the place, discovering loads of stuff. I mean, Italy for a start. Italy, to me, wasn't really getting getting its act together until the noughties. I, I, to, to be honest, in my mind, until uh, 10 years ago. Um, mm. That 
that was an enormous subject I needed to know more about. Portugal was only getting its act together. That was a subject I needed to know. Spain is transformed in the last 10 or 15 years. I think the point is I was too busy with lots of other stuff. And I kept looking at, at, at England. I kept supporting it. I kept saying, hey, fellas, this is wonderful, and then moved on. And I think it was the 2018 vintage. Um, not No, I take that back. The 2018 year in Britain the heat, the warmth, the summer, the endless days when the sun never seemed to set. The next morning up it came again and it went down and up it came again. So that all over Britain, people began to believe in, in, in climate change, the positive side of climate change for, for uh, the vineyards of this country. And I just thought this could be one of those great vintages. Um, it's, it's, I've got to get a book written. Um, a, a book which I've been sort of wondering and wondering about for a long time. I've got to do it now. So that, I think, um, that that magical year when we made more wine than ever before, then we had more um, sunshine and heat than ever before, when the grapes were riper than ever before, when there were more experts also than ever before, when there were more um, vineyards which had been planted five, six, seven, eight years ago, just beginning to say, hey, this is what we can do. And, and I just thought, no one's written this kind of book for the general public. We, we need one. We need to get a book out there which will persuade people to go to that local vineyard and say, hello, I hear you make wine. I didn't know that. Um, can I try it? Oh, that was nice. I'll buy a bottle. I might come back next week and buy another one. I might come back at the weekend and buy six. In other words, people, and also um, it sounds silly to say this, but Brexit, Brexit, uh, I realised that with Brexit, whether we believe in it or not, it's happened. And if it's mm. happened, you've got to bloody deal with it. Um, and there's no much, you know, I could go moaning about the place for the next next 10 years. It won't do me any good. It won't do England any good. It, Brexit's happened. Um, so we've got to deal with it. And one of the ways we deal with it is being proud of what we've got in this in this country. Um, it's funny. You look at the look at the Welsh. The Wel Welsh wine industry is a tiny little industry, but they're very proud. They are. Um, yeah. They're a delight to work with. Um, and I was thinking, OK, Brexit, we need to be proud. Brexit, we need to look after our own. We need to say, OK, this is a time when we have to say what's happening in our country. And it's the same with cheese and with beer and with cider and with, with, whether, with the, whether you've got a local butcher and whether you've got a local greengrocer and all that other kind of thing. We've got to support ourselves. And eventually um, I, I thought time for a book, time for a book to persuade people to tell them what's happening. Um, mm -hmm. and then persuade people to take it seriously and enjoy it. Well, it is very persuasive as a book. It really is, um, because you're such an evangelist for wine more generally, but particularly for the, the wines of England and, 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 and Wales. And of course, I want to say British wine, but um, actually it took me a, a long time to realise that British wine is a bit of a problem as a term, isn't it? Because it is something else. For those who don't know, just, just briefly explain what British wine actually means. I, I think for the new generation, it won't be a problem um, because British wine, in legal terms, and I believe, by the way, this is about to end, but in legal terms, it, was meant, it meant that, that you could bring in grape must and squashed out old raisins and God knows what and prunes and, and dates and anything that fermented from abroad. And in places like Kingston-upon-Thames in, in, in England, you could squirt and squeeze that into some kind of alcoholic 
liquid and then you threw in some some pure alcohol and made it into what used to be called British sherry or British port or British anything and it was a British wine was a term for for British manufactured fortified wines um and uh, technically, uh, things like um, Buckfast would be a British wine. Things like uh, El Dorado and Lanlick up in Glasgow would have been British wines. Now, that, that market means nothing to, to a millennial, means nothing to a Generation Xer. You know, someone aged 40 or 50 and you're, or 30 or 20, you say, what is British wine? They'd say wine made in Britain. So I, th- I yeah. think that... That I, I don't think that's going to be a, a problem in the future. In fact, uh, I've I've just given up talking about it. Um, uh, British wine to me is going to mean wine made in England, Wales, and of course Scotland because it's going to happen. Um, they're already yeah. clearing. There's a, a there's a vineyard in Fife. Uh, there was an attempt at a vineyard in Dumfrieshire, for goodness sake. Um, they're clearing some land near Glasgow. Uh, I think it's a bit um, a bit precipitate. I'd leave it another year or two, but you know I've had some already. You know, you you've probably had you know those Delane wines from from Gateshead. Have you tried them? No, I haven't. But I was amazed. I've tried wines from I've tried wines from the other side of Hadrian's Wall. Um, <laughs> it's ha- it's happening. It's 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 happening. Wines are being made. Beautiful wines are being made in Derbyshire. Last Saturday saw the start of the Yorkshire Wine Trail. Yorkshire now has a wine trail. It's incredible. It's, it's, it's happening. It's, the dots it's, on your map are incredible, incredible actually. Yorkshire, Yorkshire wines are really nice. And they get medals at the at the Wine GB and they get medals at the International Wine Competition. Uh, they're, they're really pleasant wines. And good God, I used to I used to make jokes about Yorkshire because you have to, you know. You know, what's the point of having Yorkshire if you can't make jokes about it? Um, <laughs> and so I used to say, oh, yes, I can. They used to do this when I used to go up to Yorkshire television and all these people. They'd always make me blind taste. And they'd say, oh, we'll get him this time. He won't get this one and and they'd give me a sort of a, a cut glass decanter of this sort of liquid and i'd and i'd say that it'll be that bloody leventhorpe from leeds and of course i'd smell it and it smelt of rust and an old machinery and sort of the detritus of coal of coal mine slag and i'd say oh good gracious this is very interesting very mineral very um northern must be somewhere like yorkshire and they would data they'd say the bloke's a genius he's a bloody genius i thought i'm not a genius i'm just not a fathead because it's perfectly obvious you give me eleven here. Eleven thought like you did last year and like you did the year before, but <laughs> nowadays, Leventhorpe from Castleford, you know, rugby league Castleford is a really nice glass of wine and has been for the last ten or fifteen years. Uh, and Yorkshire now is making making very nice wines out in the Humber, making very nice wines up at north of of Hull on the Hull River up towards Beverley. 2025 vineyards. Yorkshire Incredible. does it. Derbyshire, Renishaw Hall in Derbyshire. Absolutely delicious wine. You know, that's a north-facing site. North-facing site in Derbyshire makes absolutely delightful wine. You talk about a kind of, in the book, about a, a what sounds to me like a bit of an epiphany. It's what you describe as a, a, a shivering, thrilling realisation that you were tasting something new and different. And you're talking about, I think, the mid to late 1990s. And I suspect you're talking about Night Timber here. Uh, What exactly do you mean by that kind of shivering, thrilling realisation? What were you tasting? It was Night Timber 1992, that would have been. Um, which I think was a Blanc de Blanc, uh, and the Night in 1993, which was the one that won the IWSC um, Sparkling Wine of the Year. And 
it was uh, I've been lucky enough once or twice in my life to do this. Um, New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc was an example. When I first tasted those New Zealand Sauvignon Blancs, I absolutely knew that the world of white wine was changing and wouldn't and and was changed forevermore and f for the better. Um, I think when I tasted things like Australian Shirazes for the first time, I was absolutely gobsmacked at the, at the kind of flavours that were available in wine, which I never knew about uh, in, in, in Europe. Now, this time, uh, it was something from my own doorstep. And it was when I tasted this, it was Nightember 1992, and it had a it had an acidity quite unlike champagne acidity and it was it was you know you might say oh it's as taut as piano wire well yes but this wasn't so much as taut as piano wire it was something silvery about it, it was something shimmering um um about it as though you had the you had the ping of of a, of a piano wire and then you had the shimmering silveriness of it something running through that acidity it had it had um, the autolysis thing, the, the the yeasty thing, the creamy thing. Now this was fabulous in the, in those early night timbers because it literally was like croissant rather than brioche. People talk about brioche in champagne all the time. A, who knows what brioche tastes like nowadays? Um, but B, is it really brioche, which is not quite not quite sugarless? I think it's more like croissant. I think most people have a, a vague idea what croissants taste like. And here we had this croissant, and you had something like a lovely, lovely, um, slightly salted sort of Devon or Cornish butter, and a little bit of clotted cream, maybe a little bit of, of something like, as a Kent boy, something like Kent cobs, that kind of hazelnut, Kent cobs kind of nuttiness about it. All these things wrapping together, and some fruit in there as well. And, and, and the whole thing, and it had some saline. Oh, that's the salted butter for you. You know, when you get butter with, with the, the crystals of salt oh, in it. Oh, I love stuff. that. Absolutely yes. Delicious. Yes. Um, and all of this was happening, and it was just building up in my mouth. And it was just the, the, the flavors, you know, with, with sparkling wine, you expect the, the sort of the alcohol to head off for your brain. But this time, the aromas were just piling into my nasal cavity, pouring into my brain and saying, remember this, remember this, this is a really important moment in your wine life. And, and it was. Wow. It's a real moment, isn't it? Um, we know a lot about the uh, chalk, you know, the, the Paris Basin thing, the, the fact that the chalk goes under the English Channel and pops up in, in Kent and Sussex. And, and that's fairly well known and is obviously a major factor in the success of, of the wines that we're talking about. But something I didn't really appreciate until I was reading the book is clay, because I, as a gardener, a keen gardener, I tend to think of clay as a total pain in the arse, to be honest. But you make the point that actually the clay that we have in England and Wales, and, and presumably Scotland too, I don't know, is, is actually a good thing. Uh, I think it's a good thing in some places. Uh, what we have certainly discovered is that, uh, that, um, that you can make perfectly good Pinot Noir, uh, or excellent Pinot Noir in this country, on clay. And on the whole, when you go to someone like Burgundy, the, the heavy clay soils, they're just, they're sort of said, oh, that's Bourgogne Rouge. That's, that's just basic Appalachian stuff. You won't make anything special there. Um, and indeed, you may not in, in, in Burgundy, because you know, as a gardener, clay's problem is it, when it rains, it, when it, when it rains, it just thickens up and becomes solid. Uh, but if it's too dry and warm, it just cracks. And you, and the, 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 the challenge is to try and find a balance between the two. Well, at the moment, it looks to me as though we've, there are various parts of the UK, and Kent and Sussex are amongst them, where the clays have just the right, right amount of 
sunshine and just the right amount of moisture. And these are often London plays. Wealdon plays are a bit heavier, but even so, there have been some very good Pinot Noirs off Wealdon plays in, in, in Kent and Sussex. But the 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 crucial plays in this country, the ones that have been really exciting, are over in Essex. And those are London plays. And I think the point about them is Essex is the driest part of the UK. You've got things like the Blackwater Estuary and the Crouch Estuary, which is a peninsula running out from Chelmsford between those two. Newhall have been there for 20 or 30 years. Um, and those that peninsula is now growing some of the best Pinot Noir and Chardonnay in the country on clay soils, and I went and looked at um, at the the sort of rain and sun and and uh, and, and warmth uh, figures over there, and what what seemed to be the point was that if clay is too dry, it cracks; if clay is too wet, it waterlogs. But at Essex, it's the driest part in England, but it's still England. So you still get just enough rain. So the moisture gets just enough into the clay to soften it all up, but it then stops. Now, if, it, if you were in Gloucestershire, it would probably keep on raining and your clay would waterlog. But in Essex, it gets just enough. So the driest part of, of England is not like the driest part of France, uh, where, be, where the clays would all crack. Here, they, and they, you know, they are mingled in often with a, with a bit of limestone and gravel and this and that. But actually, over in Essex, they're pretty much clay. And it's just, it's local climate. It's the good old French terroir. And there is a terroir, for, for a clay terroir in Essex, which is proving itself to be fabulous for Pinot Noir. Not great dense Pinot Noirs, although in 2020 they produced one at 14.7% alcohol. Which wow, I, in Essex. Yeah, but I'm sure I'll taste it sooner or later. But they're also managing and uh, to to produce things like lovely Chardonnays uh, from from vineyards like Clay Hill, which is one of the, one of the ones going down to the estuary towards the south. Um, and they also have traditionally produced beautiful Bacchus. A lot of that really good Bacchus um, has been from New Hall, and quite a lot of their vineyards face slightly north. So yeah, it's... Essex Essex has been an unsung hero in in English wine for twenty years. The indomitable Oz Clark OBE, whose entry to the wine world was serendipitous, as we heard, which brings us neatly onto our next guest in this special edition, Fiona Beckett, an author, food critic and judge, probably most familiar to us all as the wine writer for The Guardian. She also deserves real credit for her fantastic website, matchingfoodandwine.com. And she talked to me about how she got started in the wine world, which also involved serendipity. I mean, I was just dead lucky. It was absolutely a classic case of being in the right place at the right time. I was working on a, a now defunct uh, newspaper called Today, um, which was kind of like a mid-market tabloid for those of you who are not familiar with it. I'd been um, working on features and doing all sorts of um, general features and, and, and comment pieces and quite a lot on food. And they decided to do a food and wine supplement, uh, a bit like the Guardian Feast. And they'd lined up um, Julie Goulden to do the wine um, quite naturally. And um, unfortunately, she then found she couldn't because the other paper for which she was writing objected. And so they had no one to write the next week's column. And they said to me, you know about wine, don't you, Fiona? And I said, yeah, yeah, I know about wine. Lying through my teeth. <laughs> and, um, and so they said, well, just just kind of 
put us together a couple of columns. And um, so I did with, with the help of um, my late husband, who actually did know a bit about wine, fortunately. And um, they said at the end of that, oh, they said, that's fine, you know, just carry on. Wow. I mean, that's uh, an incredible start, really. Uh, it, it reminds me of, uh, I once bluffed my way through a football report uh, for uh, the BBC, and uh, I, I know nothing about football. So um, I'm very fortunate in a way I didn't end up being a football writer on that basis. But um, no, it, it's, it's, it's extraordinary. You're part of the, the wine writing establishment, um, if I may use that term now. I suspect you probably don't like the term that much, actually. But is, is the establishment something uh, in wine writing terms that you slightly rail against? Um, yes, I mean, I do. Um, I, I, I get a bit um, hot under the collar sometimes when I go to those big tastings or used to um, uh, those big trade tastings. And, you know, you get sort of chaps coming up to each other and sort of slapping each other on the back and saying, how are you, dear boy? And, and that does still go on. And so, um, yeah, I don't really like to think of myself as establishment. <laughs> what would you like to think of yourself as uh, in terms of what you do day in, day out? I like to think that I can help people who are really into food enjoy wine because so many people are intimidated by wine. I'm sure you, you come across this. Mm. And... I mean, including people who cook, um, sometimes for a living, but they, they, they feel and say, I know nothing about wine, which is not obviously true, but they, they, that's what they feel. And, but they have the skills to cook and they have the skills to often write recipes. Um, and I see my task as actually making the, opening up that world to them so that they can just enjoy wine and other drinks, in fact, alongside the food they're so good at making. And food and wine go together so naturally. Um, I love what you enthuse about because it appears to be food and wine in equal measures. I mean, only this week you posted a picture of a quiche and said, you know, it was impossible to resist, so I didn't. Uh, and I, I love that. I'm surprised that in the fine wine world, I sometimes encounter people who don't appear to be very interested in food. It's strange, isn't it? Yeah, definitely a division. Um, I think a lot of people in, in, you know, who take wine seriously feel that the wine always comes first. Uh, you choose the wine and frankly, it doesn't matter a great deal what you eat with it because, you know, it's the wine you want to drink. And my view would be, yeah, but wouldn't it be so much better if you actually chose something that set that wine off and, you know, made it more enjoyable rather than something that, that you know, might destroy it or, or diminish it? Um, so um, I think it's relevant. And actually, most people drink wine with food. They don't kind of assess it in, in abstract. So this is your motivation, presumably, for setting up matchingfoodandwine.com. Yes, I thought, you know, I've come at, um, into the wine world through food, um, being, being naturally greedy, loving to cook, um, you know, enjoying going out to restaurants. And there was a gap, um, I thought, for a site that actually brought the two together. And I think in some ways still is. There's not that much out there. Um, and so, you know, it's just become a go-to resource, I think, for a lot of people. Um, I think a lot of people in the trade use it. I'm sure they do. I mean, I certainly do. The term perfect pairing, you were talking there about um, wine intimidating people. Do you think the pursuit of the perfect pairing 
uh, intimidates people as well. Yes, I'm, I'm ambivalent about this. I know I don't like the term, and I know that, but I know that people do quite like the idea of the perfect this, the perfect that. You get it in, in recipes too, don't you? You get the perfect roast chicken or something like that. I mean, it's just ludicrous, really. You know, there is no one perfect way of making chicken. There is no one perfect pairing. But it's quite helpful to say, well, there are these options. Not too many, because otherwise you just overwhelm people with information. But just say, you know, you could go in this, this and this direction. Um, and depending on your taste. But, um, I mean, it's a kind of, um, it's a bit of tabloidese, a bit of magazine-type journalism, isn't it? The perfect this, the perfect that. It um, doesn't help us, really. It makes us feel inadequate if we don't get it. Yes, it's the curse of the headline writer, I, I suspect, uh, because it's such an easy headline, the perfect roast chicken or the, the perfect wine pairing, isn't it? Um, what yeah. would you say are the most challenging pairings you come across? I mean, there are, um, I, th- I think the whole, the whole trend of food which, where kind of like all sorts of dishes are served at the same time, that is relatively challenging in that you can't really find a wine that goes with them all. Actually, that even applies to a cheese board. If you have a cheese board with, you know, sort of five, six different cheeses of, of different types, particularly if you like cheese and you buy, you know, well-matured artisanal cheeses, um, it's quite difficult to find a wine that goes with them all. But the usual suspects... I mean, you mentioned asparagus, um, mm. artichokes is another. There's usually a way around it. I mean, I, I, I generally don't find a problem with asparagus um, and even artichokes. Uh, it kind of depends whether you, if you cook them the old French way, where you kind of um, um, boil them and then you kind of serve them with a vinaigrette, that is quite difficult. And, and certainly I wouldn't serve a red wine with it. But, you know, there are ways around these things, usually by tweaking the dish slightly. Final question, um, which is one that I suspect um, you get asked quite a lot. Um, what's your desert island wine? Yeah, this is a difficult one. Um, I usually cop out on this um, because, you know, I, I kind of probably change my mind every six months on what it might be. But I generally think and say, well, you know, desert island's going to be hot and I want something that's just um, enjoyable to drink. So I'm I'm going to take um, a case of rosé or kind of an unending supply of rosé. I mean, unlike many people, you know, I don't regard rosé as second-class wine. I do actually think it's delicious. And um, if, if you push me, I might say Bondol rosé. I particularly like that. Oh. Um, uh, but yeah. um, I don't know. Why wouldn't you want rosé on a desert island? The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Well, Fiona Beckett has always loved Provence Rosé, something that's close to my own heart too. But even a decade ago, it was nothing like as fashionable as it is now. So it was a real thrill to talk to Stephen and Jeannie Cronk, who had a vision, selling their southwest London terraced house and moving to Provence to set up a winery. It could be said to be living the dream, though the recent wildfires which happened in Provence were closer to a nightmare. We should say those happened after this interview. That's why it's not referred to. Back in early July, I spoke to them about how their domain, Mirabeau, began. 
So I, I joined the wine trade straight out of university. I was completely nuts about wine and joined a small shipper in London as the lorry driver. So I, I was doing deliveries around London and uh, during the day and then studying wine in the evening. So I did my WSET uh, exams. And once I got my what, what, what was then called higher certificate, which I think now is called level two, um, I was given a business card and told to go and start selling wine. And that was my best. That was my sales training. But yes, I've been in the wine trade um, throughout my twenties, and I even had Stephen Cronk fine wines in Wandsworth um, uh, in my mid twenties, which was a, a bit of fun. So, I think we couldn't have done this if I hadn't have had that background. Um, but when I was thirty, I decided actually um, I needed to go into the corporate world and get some experience doing something else. So from the age of thirty to forty-five, I, I was in telecoms until until 2009. So you had a kind of boring job, I suppose, a sensible <laughs> job for a while. Uh, yeah, well, but you have to make money as well. And you don't make much money in, in wine generally, I, I suppose. Uh, Jeannie, your specialism was interior design. Did you already have the wine bug as well? Well, a, a little less than Stephen. Um, I mean, I'm actually I, came, I had a background in, in marketing and tech marketing, which is also where Stephen and I met. So, um, you know, the marketing side of it came in quite handy. And then um, after or during, uh, you know, raising my kids, I started um, to pursue my interest in interior design and, and did some courses at KLC. So but, you know, I was obviously a partner in wine, as it were, to, to Stephen. And uh, most of his bonuses tended to end up um, in our sort of understairs cupboard um, in our house. So, so, you know, and I had the rosy bug, I would say I credit myself with the, with the, with the rosy part of the story. Okay, so was there a single moment then, an epiphany that made you both decide to give up what you were doing in Southwest London and uh, jack it all in and, and go to the South of France? Well, actually, there were a few epiphany moments. And the, the, the first one was that I, um, shortly after we were married um, and bought our little family home in, 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 in Richmond, I, I went um, hiking with friends of mine in the south of France. And we were hiking round a vineyard for hours, and I was uh, admiring it from afar. And they were very nosy friends. And they said, they asked me how much we'd spent on our London house. And, and I told them, and they said, Stephen, this vineyard is on the market for the same price that you've just spent on your tiny terrace house in London. And that was like a moment where I thought, oh, I'd love to get back in the wine trade. And in theory, if I could pay off the mortgage, I could buy that vineyard. And that was the first the first one. Um, and then I came back and told Jeannie that and she laughed at me and said, let's just get on with life, can we? Or, 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 or yes, try and pay off the mortgage, then we'll make a decision later. But then, then um, you know, one of the things that I feel very strongly about is if you've got an idea like this is to talk about it with, with friends who you trust. And... and we had some friends visiting us from overseas and they were really quizzing his he was in he is in banking and and he was really quizzing us on okay guys when are you going to do this and uh we kind of you know we'd had a few bottles of wine but we had in in our uh, we had in our kitchen at that time a blackboard you know to write our to-do lists and shopping lists and things and he said okay guys write up there the date that you think you're actually going to be in france making wine and we did that and he took a photograph of it and he sent it to us three or four years later um, on that date, um, which I think was May May 16, that we said that we'd be uh, sorry, yeah, no, May May 2006, that we said we'd be living in France making wine, and he sent that photograph to us in May 2006, and he said, "Where are you guys now?" And we were still in London, and that really made me think, "Gosh, I don't want to be that person who just talks about it." You know, I really want to be the, you know, that person who, you know, if you've got a dream, you've got to go and make it happen, and that was really uh, the sort of second epiphany moment. And Jeannie, were you? fully on board all the way through this? 
<laughs> no. 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 I had just well, I was sort of you know I had two kids um, relatively close together, and then then we part of on, on that blackboard we also marked have third child before yeah. <laughs> moved to France, which which we duly then did. And um, and so so let's put it this way, you know, when you've got three uh, young kids, you know, well settled, lots of friends, life was well, life was nice in Southwest London. So you know, to kind of go and pack it all up, we just moved house, you know, to a nice house. Uh, you know, it all felt relatively cozy. So so I sort of kept on sort of telling Stephen to go and lie in a in a dark room and 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 wait for this longing to go away. But eventually. You know, it was quite clear that it wasn't going to go away and that he was actually getting more and more miserable, you know, doing what wasn't really causing much enthusiasm in his in in his world. So 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 eventually, um, you know, one thing led to another. He got offered a promotion. We didn't take it. They said, well, if you're not going to take it, then you might as well leave. So so that's what we did. You know, we we we, we took redundancy and, and packed up and went quite quickly after that. It took only seven months for us to then sort of sell the house and, and actually go. But I would say that Jeannie has been the real hero in this because it was my, you know, I would say quite selfish dream to go make wine. You know, Jeannie was prepared to go along with it, but it was it was really tough for I think for for Jeannie in particular, but for the children as well to to be dragged away from their comfort zone. You know, we had a really nice bunch of friends who were living in Teddington at that time. You know, they had you know we were they were in a really good school. The two eldest were in a really good school. And um, and it, we did a leaving bash at um, uh, at Hampton Court um, because I was a member of the Real Tennis Club there, and and made a speech, and everyone went, oh great, good luck. But then Josie, our, our eight year old as she was then, decided to make a speech too, completely impromptu, and she had the whole bunch of people there crying their eyes out. She was like saying, I'm not quite sure why mummy and daddy are doing this, but <laughs> I'm sure it'll work out fine. I'm going to miss you terribly. I don't really know where we're going. Um, and everyone was looking at us like, you, what kind of parents are you? You're so you horrible people. And it was just the most awful moment that suddenly the realization that, oh my gosh, you know, it's not just Stephen, it's the whole family. And we don't know where we're going, where we knew, we knew which village we were going to, but we really didn't know where this was going to end up. So that, you know, so I, I think that the courage shown by Jeannie and, and the family was was um, was was tremendous. It's a great story. It really is. And I just think about my uh, partner and I when we have a discussion. I'm always the one coming up with the kind of harebrained schemes, the, the kind of batshit crazy stuff. Let's do this. Let's do the other. And my partner, who knows me too well, is always, no, well, that won't work because of this and that won't work because of that. And we've, we've got to think about this and all the rest of it. Are you, as a as a double act, because you always come across as, as, as so, so equally <laughs> Mirabeau, um, you're obviously a great team, but is is there kind of one of you who's a bit a bit madder, a bit more daring, and the other who's more sort of cautious? Well, it's the same constellation, David. Yeah, I think <laughs> I'm, I'm the sensible German, and he's the crazy Brit who will go out and conquer the world. So, so yeah. Yeah, if if we were both if we were both like me, this really wouldn't have worked. You have to have. I describe it sometimes as an acceleration of brake. You need both to be able to drive well, uh, and and we we both have our hands on the on the steering wheel. But no, it's a good it's a, a combination that works quite well. Yeah, you're only going to encourage my partner now. So, what made <laughs> you um, make a rosé wine? Because it's fair to say that it was fashionable, I suppose, then, but it was nothing like as huge as a category as it is now. Yeah, I mean that really was kind of, you know, I, I had spent quite a lot of time in the south of France as as a child and my parents were 
really avid Rosé fans. So I had sort of grown up with Rosé in my life. Um, and uh, I sort of, you know, I, I infected Stephen a little bit with, with that particular bug. And then we, we just always, you know, we just always loved Rosé. We were, we were big fans of, you know, some of the wines that were, you know, early importers, as it were, into, in, into the UK. And, and we always brought a bottle of rosé to, to dinner parties and people sort of looked at us kind of slightly oddly why, why we would do that. Um, but um, yeah, so it was really something that I loved. I thought it was a wine that had lots of potential. You know, it was clear that it was getting better and better as well. So, so I think you would have certainly, following that region over time, you would have noticed that, you know, the quality of the wines has just improved, you know, incredibly over the last... 15 years, I'd say. Um, and it became more and more wine that, you know, I just thought people are going to love this. It's, you know, it's, it's perfect for our lifestyle now. It works so well with food. It's really underrated, actually, as a, as a, as a nice tipple. And so I sort of said, come on, why, why, why don't we do a rosé? And after, you know, not too long a period, Stephen thought that was maybe not such a bad idea. And Stephen, were you always fully on board uh, the rosé concept? I was a huge wine geek at the time and 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 had all these ideas of making really kind of bizarre wines but then when you know i mean we, we were always rosé drinkers and when you know, when i when i got the bug for rosé i realized actually this is something that people are actually going to drink um you know i can make some really kind of wacky wines but you know for, which would be fun to make but where's the market and um, we really believe that the rosé market was going to was was going to grow so and and since then i've actually realized that you know technically what rosé wine is pretty hard to make to make good rosé wine it's it's really really a challenge so uh no i'm really happy we, we we chose that color wine to make and just explain why it's so difficult to make then well the thing with rosé is that people are buying it with their eyes as well as their their nose and their palate so you've got that third dimension that third sense that you have to appeal to and to get the, the best out of the wine, but not to get too much color extraction from the skins, is a very fine balance. So, you know, you need to have really good temperature control. You need to do night harvesting. You know, you need to monitor it so, so carefully. Um, so you want to get as much flavor uh, across from the skins to the juice, uh, you know, pre-fermentation. Pre but you, you don't want to get too much color. So that's why that extra element of color is, is so crucial. And how did you go about making your first cuvee? Because clearly you had uh, some wine knowledge, some wine expertise up to a point, but unless I'm very much mistaken, I don't think you'd actually uh, made a wine yourself at that stage, had you? You're not mistaken. We hadn't ever made wine before. And this is another reason why it was a slightly barking mad adventure to do to do this. But um, we managed to to rope into to this adventure. Um, Angela Muir, who is somebody that I knew from my early wine career, who is a master of wine and uh, an outstanding winemaker and, and an outstanding blender as well. And she came on board uh, and as a friend, I mean, she she was just amazing. And she really helped us um, decide the, the, the profile um, and, to, and to, blend our first, to blend our first wine, Mirabeau Classic. And are you especially hands-on in the winemaking these days? Well, I'd say, I'd say we, are, we are, you know, more and more, obviously, I mean, you'll come to this anyway, but we've got our own little estate in the meantime. So there we're sort of, you know, fully involved. And, but we also are very, very close to our growers. So we work with, you know, a regular set of the best growers um, in the Cote de Provence region. 
and um, and so we we do actually spend quite a fair bit of time with them, you know, and 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 understand the process as well, and they understand us very well and what we're looking for. So so it's it's you know it's 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 the the accent is obviously on the blending in the sense that that is really what we specialize in, and in all the you know slightly more boring bits uh, that 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 mean you you know the logistics and the and the bottling and the and the design and <laughs> which is actually pas passionate I'm passionate about the design part. But it's uh, but it is really something that you know we, we follow really closely and we get really involved. You know we're not just people who sort of own a place and then and then send their people out to to look at things and to tell them what to do. You know we do get. I mean the the, the blending process takes us about a month. In November, I mean we barely sleep and we we, we 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 sort of race around the countrysides to 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 visit people and to get the best for our cuvées and it's something that we do personally every year. And I definitely want to come to the branding in a minute, actually, because it's so strong. But on the winemaking, um, you initially, I think, uh, planned to use estate grapes effectively to have your own vineyard. That was the, the sort of plan on the blackboard, I think, wasn't it? But it, it didn't quite happen initially, did it? Well, that's right. And that, that, that's where, where I think it was, had been useful that I've been in the wine trade before, because I spoke to people who knew better than me uh, about this uh, idea. And they were able to to give me some really good advice. I mean, I'm sure you know very well the old adage that you can make a small fortune in the wine trade if you start with a large one. <laughs> um, but we, we weren't starting with a large one. We were starting with the proceeds from the sale of our house. Um, and we really quickly did the maths on, on that. And, and there's no way we could have we probably even afforded a, any kind of vineyard in Provence. You know, it's, it's a, quite an expensive vineyard area. Um, but part of the research led me to meet a, another master of wine called Matthew Stubbs um, uh, in, in the Languedoc at the time. And he said, Stephen, there are three V's in winemaking, wine viticulture, the vinification, et vendre, selling the stuff. And he said, you, know, the, you need to kind of lose this obsession about doing it all. You know, you, you know, if you, you know, the skill sets are so different um, and so specific in each of those three V's. Um, and you know, you, 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 you're not a tractor driver. You're more in, in the, you know, you've got a sales background. So we decided to to kind of slice and dice this a little bit differently and get involved in the second V, so get involved in, in the vinification and the winemaking by, you know, talking to our partners about style and so on. But that we would, and, and for us to create our own, our own cuvee, our own labels, um, and then for us to build the brand. So we, that's, that's how we ended up deciding to do it in, in the way that we have done. And what a brand you built, uh, Mirabeau, incredibly uh, strong, visually so striking. As I said, it's led to this, this family of wines, which we'll come to in a bit. But first of all, um, I'm assuming, Jeannie, this is uh, your end, given your, your background. Um, how did you come up with that brand and that name? Yeah, it, it was it was also a little process, um, um, but Mirabeau is uh, is you know ubiquitous in in Provence uh, because uh, the Count of Mirabeau was the MP for for the for the region um, during just pre-revolution, um, and um, and there's you know as, as as most people who've ever been to X know that Cour Mirabeau is is the beautiful main street of X, and and there are countless fountains and cafes and. Uh, and so on, named after this uh, historical figure in France, and uh, we just loved the name. It also means uh, it, it means beautiful view or seeing beauty, 
which we thought was was a really nice um, thing to apply to a rosé. Um, and um, and and the other big advantage is that everybody can more or less can say it. So apart from the mirabu mirabo, <laughs> it does happen, um, but is absolutely fine. Um, you know, we felt it was a name that would work in most languages, which is quite important because you know who who hasn't you know, had a nice wine and then immediately forgotten what it was called or standing in front of a shelf or, or, you know, being in a restaurant with a menu and you can't pronounce the name. We figured that that was actually something that people didn't really enjoy. Um, so it had to be a name that people could um, could remember and pronounce easily. Um, and then we came up with this little concept, um, you know, the, the, the design on the bottle, the drawing on the bottle um, that is basically based on a, on a vine of life. Um, we loved, you know, the idea of the sort of, you know, the, the, the circular um, way of, of life um, and, and the connection to the soil um, and the five birds that are, again, classic in, 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 a, in, in a tree of life um, are on the vine of life. Um, and it basically represents us and our children trying to take root in our new um, in our new country and, and trying to basically connect with the people and, 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 and the lovely the lovely vines that we did find. The wonderful Stephen and Jeannie Cronk of Domain Mirabeau. You can't talk about Provence without reference to what must be the most famous rosé wine in the world these days, Whispering Angel. Its creator is Sasha Lachine, who gave up a Bordeaux first growth property inherited from his father to realise a vision for rosé in Provence instead. His Chateau d'Esclat now produces seven different wines available all over the world. It's a roaring success. So I asked him how it all began. Well, you know, my, my um, father had uh, Priere Lachine and he had another vineyard called Chateau Lascombe and he actually started in Burgundy. So I grew up with wine cellars that were full and people at the dinner table and wine being served and wine being sold. So I was, let's say, baptized in a barrel somehow. And um, so I've had wine. Um, I think it's the only thing that I've ever known how to do. And I, I've been fortunate enough to have touched in a lot of different sort of aspects of all of this. So I was a sommelier for a, for a period of time. I worked in the vineyards. I worked in the cellars. I worked for distributors in the U.S. I've also worked for retailers, and so I sort of had a bit of knowledge, a little bit about the wine industry, as as it's all that I've ever done. And uh, Provence, all of a sudden, came about as a category, let's say, which was sort of cheap and cheerful and unknown at the time. And um, basically, uh, we saw a future in the category. Rosé Champagne had all of a sudden sort of begun to become quite popular. If you think of 30 years ago, there was no rosé champagne. So rosé champagne sort of took a little bit of the front. And I think the category of rosé champagne helped still rosé considerably. So you ran uh, the estates you inherited from your father, uh, Priore Lachine, very successfully. And then you decided to sell up in, in Margot and uh, buy an estate in Provence when Provence was not really very fashionable. Uh, did people at the time tell you that you were mad? Well, they told me I was off my uh, off my rocker. Yes, they thought I was absolutely crazy to leave Bordeaux and to go to a place like Provence. The problem with Bordeaux is that you know you're jockeying for position and for price. So 
I think um, what I had done was maybe put the cherry on the cake in Bordeaux of something that my father had built, and I wanted a new challenge, and uh, I had visited about 32 properties in Provence. I was looking to, to initially sort of make a bit of a difference. And um, Provence Rosé was just starting up. I drank quite a bit of rosé growing up. My father used to vacation a bit on the Côte d'Azur. And bit by bit, um, we started making some rosé actually in Bordeaux at the time, which was Signé rosé more than rosé that's uh, made to be. And um, basically, I just um, thought that there was um, something that was going to happen and I could feel sort of a mood um, driven by women, obviously, because it's pink and it's pretty in the glass. And it was, as I said, champagne rosé and English women, probably, that started to put it on the map. They would come back from the south of France and drink something pink bit by bit. And I think that happened also with the Cannes Film Festival and out in Los Angeles and with all of the sort of stars going back to L.A. So bit by bit, the category had uh, a little bit of something happening on top of the fact that obviously we're in an area where lifestyle is um, magnificent. So half of it here is lifestyle. The other half is what we've been able to produce and do. And, um, you know, you've got Saint-Tropez on your backyard and you've got the Côte d'Azur on your backyard. So you've got a fantastic clientele. So it was all about making quality. It has changed so much. Um, I fell in love with the region and uh, with, with rosé wine, actually, in the late 1990s. And in those days, you could take along a plastic container to a winery in Ramatuel and you could fill up five litres of rosé for probably not much more than a euro a litre. And it was fun. It was quite rustic compared to the wines these days. Um, just talk us through how, in your time uh, 20 years, let's say, in uh, Provence, how those rosé wines have evolved. Well, you know, I think when I arrived here in 2006, basically uh, a hectolitre of rosé was being sold on the market for about 80 euros, and now it's over 300. So I think it's all about quality at the beginning. And what we wanted to do was, with Patrick Leon, who you know had unfortunately has passed away, and who had uh, worked for Mouton Rothschild for 23 years at Almaviva and at Opus One in the U.S. And uh, we basically embarked on trying to make Rosé Grand. So to be honest with you, I think if we didn't have the technology that we have today uh, compared to the technology that was around about 30 years ago, cold systems, optimized sorting machines, nitrogen presses, everything against oxidation, I would say, because the biggest race here is a race against oxidation. I think rosé is probably the most difficult color to make good and the easiest to make average. So I think people have invested more in their vineyards. I think they've invested more in technology. And what we've tried to do is to bring the whole thing up a notch and I think bit by bit, um, the category is being recognized as real wine. And that's what we embarked to do, was to make real wine. And then when Patrick asked me one day, he said, well, what do we do? And I said, well, first of all, we make a product that we want to drink in the event that we can't sell it. So, <laughs> so in any case, it was all about quality. It was all about putting the money into the vineyards at first. It was all about density of the vineyards. We ripped vineyards out. We 
many more vines than the Appalachian requires per hectare. And uh, basically, we've uh, embarked on this barrel fermentation as well in a Burgundian style. We've developed the first sort of individual uh, temperature control system per barrel. So we can vinify one barrel at, at 15 degrees, another one at 12 degrees. So we put all the money into the vineyards and all the money into technology. And what we've come out with is something which has a lot of flavor and taste and elegance and things that are tense, but that uh, also have a bit of depth and some character and some complexity. And so uh, it's been uh, it's been fascinating trying to trying to put all of this together. And I think finally we've come to the point. This last vintage, I think, is what I finally sort of envisioned to do about 15 years ago, quality-wise. It's interesting that you mentioned barrel fermentation there, and you have um, been uh, very experimental with the use of um, oak, because uh, it was uh, maybe when you started, um, there would again be people who would question whether that was wise or not. What, why did you feel that you should be using uh, barrel fermentation and, and oak in that way? Well, if you've drunk, which I'm sure you have, a lot of white burgundies, you you know, that are barrel fermented, um, wood is never supposed to be tasted. It's supposed to just give you an extra layer of complexity and making something longer and that lingers on your palate. And that's what great wine is supposed to do. So I think it was just to be able to pick fruit and to make wine that merited uh, the use of oak, which was lightly toasted, 600 liter barrels, so about twice, two and a half times the size of Bordeaux or Burgundy. And just to give it a little bit of complexity and a little bit of length, just to make it a little grander. And, uh, but, you know, we had to make the first wine before we put it into barrel, sort of interesting as well. So. I think it was a white burgundy sort of uh, belief as far as, you know, what oak is supposed to do, because all great white burgundies, as you know, are fermented in oak. And most of the time you can't necessarily taste it. So that's what we embarked on is complexity in the product itself. I imagined uh, before I did my sort of homework before speaking to you that uh, you'd spent sort of most of your life in a vineyard or a cellar. And of course, as you referenced earlier on, you've been a sommelier. Uh, you've worked in so many different aspects of the trade. You've had a, um, a keen uh, experience or a keen eye for retail. Um, and you've worked around sort of marketing and branding. And of course, um, you can see that in the way that the, the wines have been brought to the market. So do you think that um, that is that broader experience is, is really pivotal if you're going to enjoy uh, the success that you have? Well, I think, you know, what you have to understand, obviously, is that these wines at the end of the day need to be sold. And for it to be sold, uh, the key is positioning. So if you position a product that has a certain quality basis in a certain packaging, because packaging is important, the product is you can't do anything if you don't have the product from the start, then you have to package. We went to the UK actually to do our packaging because the, uh, the Brits are fantastic at anything that has to do with packaging. If you look at Fortnum and Mason's or Harrods or those type of things. 
so forth and so on. And then at the end of the day, distribution also is key. And that was, uh, you know, most important. So um, I think it's been, uh, it's been uh, fascinating from the start to be able to put this knowledge that I luckily have together. But the key really was positioning of the product at the price point that sort of seems to hit. And we started with the on-trade because as far as we're concerned, brands are built on the on-trade and then they trickle down to retail. And uh, I decided to start with the U.S. because one, it was a country that I know quite well, that I was educated in and that I did most of my um, commercial and marketing training. And uh, basically, once you succeed, I think, in our business in the U.S., I think it goes to the rest of the world. So we started uh, in Chicago, and that's where I started because it's a cold city and nobody drinks rosé. And um, it's a red wine town with steakhouses and et cetera. And I managed to get rosé on the map there, and I figured if I could make it in Chicago, I could make it in most places. So... We uh, went out and about and traveled the world with our bottle bag and sort of got it out and bit by bit, you know, we made four products at the beginning. It was a champagne marketing approach. So Garus was like Dom Perignon and Leclan was like the Brut Imperial. And the original Chateau d'Esclan was sort of like the Brut Non Vintage. And Moet at a while sort of had started something called uh, uh, White Star. And basically, that's what we wanted to do with Whispering. So people move up and down a ladder. There are, there are four different qualities at four different price points. And um, it was just an interesting approach, but that was our approach. So it was a champagne marketing approach. It was a multitude of different products. One helps to sell the other because Don Perignon helps to sell the Brut Non Vintage and the Brut Non Vintage helps to sell Don Perignon. And obviously, at the beginning, you know, coming out with a bottle of rosé that was 1,800 bottles and barrel fermented and retailed in the States for $100 a bottle. You know, everybody thought I was out of my effing mind at the time. So, but in any case, bit by bit, they taste it. The, they, they, uh, the wine itself finally sort of was the one that did all the talking at the end. And bit by bit, we've sort of moved the category along. We've pulled it all up from the bottom up to the median and it keeps going up and there are more and more cuvées now that are being done there's miraval that does muse which is quite extraordinary as well only sold in magnums there's ut that's just come out with etoile there's Gérard bertrand down in the south that has clos du temps which he claims now is the most expensive rosé in the world so i think at the end of the day when you have competition Competition is healthy, and you're going to grow a category, and that's what we've been doing, and that's what I've tried to do is to get the category moving. As you know, in Bordeaux, the greatest uh, sort of marketing tool of Bordeaux was the commanderie and the fact that the chateaus would get together and go out and travel and so forth. So, But the quality needs to be in the bottle, and that's what we've been fighting for because you can't export or you can't sell something in 106 countries and not have it in the bottle. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition. Using the best in the world, 
to judge the best in the world. The science of wine is something that I confess leaves me a little cold, to be honest, but that's probably because I hadn't read Wine Science, the book now in its third edition from Dr Jamie Good, a plant scientist, which seeks to demystify some of the technical stuff, making the most of his skills as a communicator. I asked him whether his love of wine came from his interest in the vine. I was a kind of, I was doing my PhD and I became friends with a group of people and one of the friends in the group um, had a had a love for wine and, you know, we used to get together on Sunday evenings and, you know, share a couple of bottles between a few of us. And that's when I was first exposed to interesting wine that made me realise there was something special about wine that I don't think, you know, you necessarily get from your random interactions with cheap wine when you're a student. You know, it's very rarely you'll come across a bottle that, that gives you that sort of epiphany moment where you go, whoa, there's something special about this. So so really, um, my love for wine came from a, a, a sort of social context um, through which I was able to realise that, ah, some of these bottles are really interesting and there's something more to be discovered here. And did you have an epiphany with a specific bottle of wine? I mean, in my case, it was a a bottle of uh, Margot, I know not the vintage, um, in a steakhouse in New York. And I just thought, wow, uh, was there a, an epiphany with a particular bottle for you? Yeah, I guess there were a few little epiphanies, but the one that I kind of would, would focus on was there's this one wine, it's an Australian wine from the Hunter Valley and it's Broken Woods Graveyard Hermitage, it was called then, um, which is a Shiraz. And I came across the 1991 version of this in a local wine shop and it was I was guided to it by this friend who knew wine and we tried it and then I went back and I bought three bottles of it and it was my first ever multiple bottle you know multiple bottle purchase I remember how much it cost 13 pounds 49 a bottle and this must have been in about 1993 and that wine was like a special moment for me um because you know that that was something that I really liked um it just turned out to be one of those classic vintages. This is the, the famous vintage of the, the Brokenwood graveyard. And um, yeah, now it's very expensive wine. But then it was something not many people have heard about here. And it was a real discovery. So tell us, uh, with Wine Science, now in its third edition, as I mentioned, um, what are you setting out to do with a book uh, that has science in the name? Well, I first did this in, I think it was 2004, the first edition. So I was still full-time employed as a science editor. And really the goal was to take the really interesting bits of science in wine, because wine is kind of scientific. Wine is pretty scientific. Um, you know, even, even non-scientists practicing wine take quite a sort of empirical scientific approach. They try different things in the winery. They try different things in the vineyard and see what the effects are. And through time, through this trial and error process, which is, you know, hands-on science it may not be involved in replicates and and you know probability and all the things of scientific experiments but it's people in the in the vineyards in the wineries effectively doing science on their own and that's so wine is intrinsically scientific so i want to take the very interesting aspects of science um as applied to wine and and make them understandable to to normal people who you know which representing kind of most of the wine industry people who haven't had a formal scientific background and I think the reason I, you know, I realized that, that, that there was a gap there is because I was 15 years a science editor and I was, you know, producing academic level books from science, scientific conferences that we held. And going to those conferences and seeing the ways that scientists 
promoted and communicated their work made me realize there was a huge gulf between that level of, of explanation and what's needed to, to take these intrinsically interesting discussions and, and ideas and make them accessible to a broader audience. It's interesting you talk about the way you communicate science and obviously your background as a, a science editor as well was, was um, a, around that. Um, because going right back to school, um, when it comes to science, and you're right, it's, it's really important in uh, wine, I can feel um, a kind of curtain coming down uh, when people start to get too scientific at a tasting. It's a, uh, uh, and it's it, it, it can be really um, quite exclusive, can't it? Science. Oh, it totally is. It's totally impenetrable, and the way it's taught at school, I think, is is appalling. It's truly appalling the way that science is made difficult and not interesting. It's almost as if there's, there's well, my experience of science being taught at school was that the, the teachers had colluded to to take all the fun out of it, to make it as difficult as possible and as dull as possible. And I just think that some of the, the some wine science concepts are, f are fascinating, but, the, you know, you need to unpack them and make them accessible without dumbing them down. And I think that the, one of the problems has been that people who really want to popularise science have just dumbed it down and stripped out of all the interesting bits. And um, we don't want that either. So I think it is, yes, it's, it's, and also I think if you've struggled a little with, with certain ideas and everything, because like, for instance, with me, I struggled quite a lot with maths and physics, you know, they weren't my favorite subjects. But then when you've struggled with something and you've then been able to understand it, you're probably better at leading somebody into that subject than somebody for whom it's come very naturally. Because I think at heart, I was an, art, an artist who did science. You know, you got to choose at the age of 16 in the UK education system between arts and sciences. And because of the school I went to, I got pushed into sciences. But at heart, I'm more of an arts person. And so I think that gives me the ability then to, to do the science, to understand it, but then also to communicate it. Well, you use very easy, relatable language. Is that something that just kind of happens? Uh, or is it something you've really set out to do? I'm just trying to put myself in the shoes of the person reading it who hasn't got a, an extensive science background. You know, why is this interesting? That's always the question I'm asking is why is this important? Why is this interesting? How does this get applied? Not getting bogged down in all the details, but also keeping a broader, because I was a science editor covering a lot of the life sciences and agriculture. You know, I was dipping my toes in lots of different scientific fields, and that gives you a broad perspective that I think often when you're a scientist, you, you get funneled into a very tiny, um, sphere of study quite early on and and so the, that's your bubble and you don't see the whole picture very much and what we did at the the organization I worked for was a scientific charity was we tried to take a, a topic that was very current but then have a, a sort of as much as we could an interdisciplinary approach to it a more holistic approach where you've got people with different insights coming together and hopefully then um, um, stimulating each other um, by the fact that they're bringing slightly different insights to each of the problems. This is the third edition of what is, uh, in effect, a, a reference book, albeit a, a very engaging one. Um, has so much really changed that you need a third edition? Well, two answers to that. One, sort of, yes. And secondly, there's a 100,000 word limit on these books. So when I went to the second edition, I had to chop things out of the first edition to fit the new stuff in the second edition. And 
So when it came to the third edition, there's lots of stuff I've never really included in the book that should have been there. So I've chopped, basically it's half new. So it's about half of the book is, is brand new. Some of the stuff is quite similar to what was in the previous edition because it's really important and it's still very current. But, you know, the world of viticulture has changed quite a bit and winemaking approaches have changed quite a bit. Um, you know, this, we're in a very active period in the wine industry where there's a lot of fresh insights, especially in the vineyard. You know, the traditional notions of, of um, splitting viticulture up into conventional, sustainable and organics doesn't work anymore. There's, there's far more nuanced approaches to, to being truly sustainable in the vineyard. And I think that some of the science involved in that is quite new science, really. And it's only recently that, that, that next level sequencing has allowed people to see what microbes are actually out there, rather than simply which sort of microbes will grow on a Petri dish in a lab when you try and culture them. So there's a lot more information about a lot of the stuff that really is very important that we've kind of discounted a bit in the past. One of the things that has definitely changed uh, in quite uh, an alarming way is the state of the planet, which is obviously very much in the news at the moment anyway, and rightly so. Um, you refer in the book to climate chaos uh, rather than global warming or using a, a, another expression. How much is the change in the weather um, impacting the way grapes are grown? Massively. Obviously, as you point out, the, 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 the grapevine only sees the weather of that season. It doesn't see the climate's an average. You know, there's increasing um, frequency of, of events happening in vineyards, whether they're, they're bushfires or frost events or hail, where, um, and this season has been particularly bad in Europe, most of Europe, for, for downy mildew. It's been a horrific season for downy mildew, following on with some really brutal early frosts. So what we're seeing is we're seeing a, a increasing disruption of stable weather patterns and vines like stable weather. And the reason I use um, climate chaos is I think that climate change doesn't quite communicate the severity of the problem. And I think that I think climate chaos, it may sound a bit jargony, but it's it's the words we use do matter. And this reminds us this is a very serious issue. and. It, not just for viticulture, evidently, you know, it's a it's a serious issue that's um, threatening um, a lot of people's not just livelihoods, but their ability to function and live where they they do. So I think that for viticulture, which is very sensitive to climatic changes, um, we have, a um, you know, it's something that the, the wine world has to almost take a bit of a lead on, you know, it's, it's got to respond now. And so quite a chunk of um well there's a quite extensive chapter focusing on the the, the changes that that um, are being experienced and, and ways that um, people can can offset those and then of course we've got to look at the carbon footprint of wine as well i think it's only appropriate that wine should take a long look at how it can decarbonize you have an extraordinary output rate as i kind of referenced in the introduction um, what is your next project now that you've got uh, the third edition of Wine Science sort of through the gate? What are you working on now? I'm about two thirds of the way through a new book on viticulture, sort of the new viticulture, you know, all the new things that have been going on in terms of um, how to grow grapevines. Um, and it's, it's bringing quite a lot of new science. So I'm really quite thrilled about this and I hope it's going to be out, I don't know, I've, I've, I'm going to make a big push to finish it in the next um, couple of months. Um, and that will be something hopefully that, that will 
be useful to a lot of people. Right. Well, good luck with that. And uh, it's always great to, to chat to you. I haven't done it for a while because of uh, the circumstances of the last uh, 18 months, but it's uh, always great to chat to you. So thank you very much for finding the time to talk to us on The Drinking Hour, Jamie. It's a real pleasure. Dr. Jamie Good, author of Wine Science, now in its third edition. Well, we round off this special edition of The Drinking Hour, Series 2 Highlights, with uh, what was a profound and really important chat about diversity in the drinks world with Dino Moncrief, tequila and mezcal expert, IWSC spirits judge and founder of Acha in Dalston, now also in Brixton, by the way. Um, He set up Equal Measures and I asked him what he hoped to achieve. For me, it was I, I wanted to to kind of redefine what a margarita could be because if you look at a margarita, and I also wanted obviously to make it delicious. But if you look at a margarita on a whole, um, generally, you know, when people have sort of innovated with margaritas, it's been through add, adding an additional flavour. So whether it's a I don't know a strawberry and chili, or a strawberry and salted caramel margarita, or whatever it may be, or a strawberry margarita, it's always an addition of a flavour. Whereas I was more interested in, okay, the margarita's only got three key ingredients. How do I extract the absolute maximum from all three ingredients? So, you know, you've got your alcohol, um, your base, of it, which is either tequila or mezcal. Then you've got your sour and then you've got your sweetness. So how do I make those unique and how do I make them actually sing and complement each other in the best possible way? So I went really right back to the basics and and just made, try to make those three components as, as uh, harmonious as possible. Well, talking of uh, uh, trying to make things harmonious, um, you're a driving force in equal measures, as I mentioned in the introduction, which is around uh, diversity in the hospitality trade. Uh, tell us uh, why you decided to get involved with this and what you're trying to achieve. Yeah, I mean, Equal Measures is a is a project that's really personal project to me. Um, the platform was uh, formed last year, and it was really I created it to raise awareness around the importance of diversity and inclusion within the hospitality industry. And the reason I did it was because if you look at um, our wonderful society in um, London, specifically in the UK as a whole, there is a little bit of a disparity where the industry doesn't really reflect the people that it serves. It's very, there's, there's not too many as, as I am a black business owner that has a, you know, a successful, uh, a successful bar. Um, I look at the representation of, of people of color, um, within positions of responsibility and senior management positions. Uh, and it's very, very low. Look at the, you know, I think five-star hotels and, and, and top hotels are also, a, one of the places that I've, I've found a little bit there's a misrepresentation there that you you know there's there's not enough uh, people of color in customer facing positions and certainly not in in um, positions of responsibility so um you know and I was interested in all of this stuff and thinking about you know the big corporate companies that have the power to make to enforce change you know are they doing enough what more can be done you know what are their you know can we look at everything from recruitment policies to the, you know, I'm talking as a, as a, as a uh, industry, a drinks industry as a whole now, you know, can we look at the way that we're recruiting people? Are the best people getting put into positions? Are there barriers that are holding people back? Is there a glass ceiling that exists? And I used all of my experience to know that 
the answer to those questions are yes there is a glass ceiling yes there are opportunities that i've missed out on because i know that were based on you know the color of my skin is there enough being done around education um the answer is probably no as well are there enough people out there that are mentoring and educating people the answer you know people of color and and helping them feel like you can get ahead you know so i i wanted to really make a difference and what happens generally is you know i think the statistics speak for themselves the amount of people that drop out of hospitality after the age of around 24 is quite remarkable so you know how do we how do we retain those people because one thing that i'm sure about is you can do absolutely anything that you want to do in this category as long as you have somebody who can inspire you and, and push you in the right direction you can do whatever job you want to do whether it's marketing whether it's pr whether it's production whether it's brand development whether it's being a brand ambassador you can tour the world like i've been able to do talking about agave spirits it just you just have to but it's not easy and and I, I want to make it easier for people to be able to do that. But then also I want everyone to take responsibility and say we can do more um, and we can be better. So one of the actually can share some um, breaking news with you now. So one of the oh. things that's actually going to be happening, which is super, super exciting, is that in a few weeks time we will be uh, partnering um, officially with the uh, with the Drinks Trust. Uh, so the, the Drink, Drinks Trust is the biggest um, charitable organisation associated with the drinks industry in the UK. Um, and we are partnering with, uh, with with the Drinks Trust so that we can amplify everything that we do quite dramatically. Um, so there'll be just one platform that will be called Equal Measures in association with the Drinks Trust. And from that, we will um, have the ambition to become probably the single most important platform for diversity and inclusion in, in, in uh, and equality issues in the UK. So you could have somewhere, uh, you know, a new website where you'd be able to get in touch with someone for seminars, for consultancy, for educational stuff, for mentorship, for, you know, courses that are available for, um, you know, um, Q&A sessions, panel discussions, um, work uh, workshops, um, mentorship sessions, work experience, everything. Uh, we're developing wow. that so that within the next 12 months, we hope that we will become, you know, the a, a really uh, one central point for people to come and, and, and learn and, and, and grow um, and have everything that they need for um, diversity issues. Well, that's fantastic. And uh, thank you for giving us the, uh, the breaking news as well. Um, so in terms of uh, you know, how that's been received within the hospitality business, clearly you've, you've had some significant success already. Uh, has it been kind of well received? Yeah. I mean, do you know what? It's been amazing. I've been completely taken aback by how you never know how these things are going to be received specifically because I do feel, I mean, this is probably quite rightly so. It's an it's an issue that, or sorry, a topic that if you're not quite sure on what your stance is or how to make the right statement on it, then, you know, people or companies tend to stay quiet on it. But what's happened is that I've had a lot of people reaching out to me saying, look, you know, I didn't realise this was a big issue, but actually now thinking about it, it is an issue. How do I get better? You know, can you help me with my recruitment policy? Um, can you come in and do a talk to my team so that they're aware of why there are um, bigger issues? And I'm, you know, I, I've spoke to events companies, corporate companies, 
even even uh, huge some of the biggest football clubs in in uh, in in the UK as well. I've I've sort of done uh, sessions with them to help them as well. So. Um, it's you know hotel groups what's been really pleasing is that those people that maybe felt a little bit nervous about approaching you know how they can improve their uh, diversity and, and and inclusion policies that they have have actually reached out so I think you know I, I, I was thinking I was going to have to send a load of emails around to everyone and saying would you, you know this is what I'm doing you know blah 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 but it, it, it's been the other way around people have come to me and and continue to come to me I, I it's daily I receive um, emails or messages honestly daily about equal measures and and how how um, you know how people can help or what they want to do and you know and the importance of it and even to be perfectly honest I've had messages from people in the States and in um, Africa and in, uh, in in a couple of European countries as well that have said to me, love what you're doing. How would we be able to do something similar here? Fantastic. And, and, and you know, that that's amazing. I have to say there's a couple of, there's a few, there's a few companies that have been really proactive in this, and I've, I think it's only right to call to, to, to call out one in particular who's who I'm going to be working quite closely with, which is Johnny Walker, the Johnny Walker whiskey. Um, so I'm going to be doing quite a lot of work on the diversity uh, uh, diversity policies, and um, I'm we're going to be doing quite a lot of stuff in community together as well. So we do community outreach projects as well. So so that's going to be a big thing. Um, and then moving on, the other biggest thing for Equal Measures is that because I've been getting so much positivity and so many requests and, 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 uh, and emails, when the new venue opens, we're going to be having a dedicated day, which is called Community Day. So Community Day will be once a week. Um, the venue, the new Atcha will uh, probably from the autumn will close one day a week uh, and have a Community Day, um, which will be a, um, a day where um, it will be free to um, community or any local community or anyone who wants to come along to learn a little bit more about um, the importance of diversity. So it may be even that we'll showcase certain brands that are owned by, you know, black or uh, or people of colour. Um, we'll showcase some of their brands for them. We'll do cooking masterclasses. We'll do workshops. We'll do training. We'll do management uh, coaching sessions panel discussion so every every uh, every week yeah what once once a week we will have that that going on um, which is you know that will be run by equal measures and we'll be doing in in partnership with many other brands as well so so right. that's really really exciting um to be able to combine the two things that i'm really passionate about you know the equal measures and atcha in one space together so that was that's something to be yeah as i say really to look exciting forward to yeah, yeah, and that's that's the new Achabar, which will open in Brixton in about five or six weeks' time. That's right, yeah. Yeah, in Brixton Market, yeah. Wonderful. All right, well, she'll definitely come along there. Uh, I, I'm yet to have your mirror margarita, so I'm oh, no. definitely going to do that. I know I'm going to do that. And it's always great to chat to you, Dino. So thank you so much uh, for joining us here on The Drinking Hour. No, it's my pleasure, and uh, I look forward to seeing it at you uh, soon. And, uh, yeah, it's nice to chat to you. Dino Moncrief, giving us hope for the future great place to round off. That's it for this special edition of The Drinking Hour, reflecting on Series 2. I'm delighted to say that Series 3 begins next week with a special focus on vermouth. So do please join us then. For now, thanks very much for listening and goodbye. 
To find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com.